Hi, this is Violet Lang. Welcome to my podcast, The Pleasure Path, all about love, dating, relationships, and femininity. I help successful spiritual women find their pleasure and their power to create healthy partnership. In this episode, I'm sharing all my thoughts on the hit series Bridgerton. Yeah, it's a few months late, but it's still worth checking out to better understand how did the characters help or hurt their romantic potential or partnerships? Do you see any of the patterns or personalities or situations in your own love life? What would you want to see in season two? I know there's a lot of hullabaloo about which characters are coming back and which are not, but this is still a great opportunity to reflect on the characters, on the romance, on the drama, and use it to improve your own love life. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to talk about Bridgerton with all of you. This is going to be a spoiler alert. So if you have not watched the whole show, put on earmuffs or go binge it and come back. I will not be holding anything back, including how the relationship dynamics play out. So let's dive in. Let's talk about Bridgerton. I have to admit that I resisted watching. I am not actually a huge fan of period pieces and period drama because it feels so stuffy. And luckily Bridgerton was not super stuffy in terms of the some of the scandals, but the, the language, like some of it just feels a little over the top for me. But I heard so much noise in good ways about the show that I figured I had to watch it. And within one episode, I was hooked. Jason was like, I thought you didn't like period pieces. And after one episode, I'm like, what's going to happen with Simon and Daphne? And why is Penelope doing what she's doing? And I got really sucked in. So that's a tribute to Shonda Rhimes because it's really, really well done. So let's start off with Penelope, Colin, and Marina, love triangle. I would love to hear what are your thoughts on Penelope, Colin, and Marina, and in general, what were your thoughts on the show? We're gonna sprinkle those in as we're going through. But first, when it comes to this love triangle, I think of Colin as the nice guy. Colin Bridgerton, he's the third son, uh, it seems like, in the birth order of the Bridgertons, his oldest brother, Anthony, and then his second oldest brother, blanking on his name right now, I wrote down all of their names, um, Benedict, are both kind of rogues. They kind of like going out partying, and he seems like he's taken the opposite approach. He's young, but he's really like earnest. He has a really good heart. And he starts courting Marina from the beginning, and he seems to be just into her. We don't really see him hanging around other people besides Penelope, which is his childhood friend. So we later find out that Penelope is in love with Colin, but I wanna focus right now on Colin being the nice guy in almost a swing of the pendulum away from his older two brothers. And I think it's a great characteristic or a great um, example of what happens when men rebel against the patriarchy. So men within our current life are looking at Me Too movement, maybe their dads, maybe other people that they've seen in the masculine and thinking, I don't want to be like that. So they turn into a nice guy and there's nothing wrong with a nice guy, but a nice guy is maybe (laughs) not always the person who's bringing a lot of fire or the person who's bringing a lot of direction or the person who's bringing a lot of, um, I'll say depth because they're just pleasing everyone else. So Colin seems like the nice guy who's rebelling against the patriarchal values that he sees in his older brothers. And Penelope really likes 
uh, Colin, but he does not like her in that way. He sees her just as a friend. So she has this unrequited love for him this entire time, and she never really voices it. And this is one of my big pet peeves of the show, is that there's not as much vulnerability as there could be. But when there is vulnerability, it really works. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So Penelope chooses not to voice her affection towards Colin, but instead voices it towards Marina and meddles in the the love that Colin is developing for Marina. And this is a problem because a lot of times we do this as women. We want something, but we, you know, talk to our friend about it, or we don't go after what we want, or we maybe feel the pain of not getting what we want. And so then we get really calculating. And of course it's revealed later that she is, um, uh, Lady Whistledown, and so she has her own kind of strategic play in things. But what I'm finding, or what I noticed, is that Colin's a nice guy, the the kind of friend, lifelong friend, is in love with him, but never actually tells him, never speaks her truth, so he never has a chance to give her clarity. And she wastes the whole first season. We never see anyone else courting her. Now, maybe it's because she's the third youngest sister, and so it's not her turn yet, but she could have been developing a love connection with someone else, and she's just pining over him. Now, what would a period drama be without pining? But still, <laughs> I think that she could have said sooner, like, I know we're just friends, but I've always wanted something more. Like, how do you feel about that? And then have been able to move on. So Marina. So Marina is Colin's love interest, and he seems very devoted to her. And she doesn't seem like she's that interested in him. She might be a little bit interested, but she's still in love with her ex, still in love with the person who's the father of her child. And so I can understand that she's not feeling super open to other suitors because she's pregnant and she's probably got some other things on her mind. And yet at the same time, she doesn't know when her loved one is coming back, if he's coming back. And so she's in a bit of a pickle. Like she's living under the house of a, of a kind of crazy matriarch, um, the Featherington's grand dame, and she's in a bind. She is in the suiting process, but she's with child. And of course that comes out and people find out about that. And she could have opened her heart a little bit more to Colin, I feel. I think if her and Colin had developed an actual real connection, if she had been a little more vulnerable with him and let him know how much she liked him, she kind of went the other route, maybe kind of trying to seduce him, get him to speed things up. It definitely worked, but she went with the erotic energy more than the emotional energy. And the erotic energy I find when that's the only card that we play, it fizzles out. It, it doesn't last long enough to create the loyalty that we need and want. Because then when everything gets exposed, because Penelope exposes that Marina has is with child, then Colin, you know, doesn't want to see Marina anymore, mainly because he feels duped. So he's the nice guy, but he feels taken advantage of. We'll see how that plays out for him in the next season or a season after that. He even says at the end to Marina, you know, if you would have just told me what was going on, I would have been fine with it, but you didn't tell me. And so it felt deceitful. So stage one, stage two, stage three feminine, I talk about that sometimes. This feels like stage one feminine. Stage one feminine is like, I'm gonna manipulate whoever I have to manipulate to get what I want. And it might be ugly, but I'm gonna do what I have to do. Now, hello, almost everyone in that time period in the 1800s, 1700s would have been stage one feminine. They were still you know, completely dependent on any sort of masculine income, masculine approval, society did not allow women to really develop themselves with the exception of Lady Danbury and the Queen. Lady Danbury is by far my favorite character. So we're talking first about this love triangle between Colin, Marina, 
and Penelope. If Penelope had bared her heart with him, may have been the same outcome. He might have said he was just wanting to be friends, but it would have liberated her to go do other things. And when she was liberated to go do other things and meet other people, then maybe she wouldn't have felt the need to meddle so much. I always say if we're not creating, we're destroying. So instead of creating a love story with someone else, she starts to destroy the connection between Colin and Marina. Marina led with her erotic energy. It worked really well for a little while, but then it fizzled out because there wasn't enough emotional energy and connection, despite uh, Colin really wanting that emotional connection. I love Lady Danbury. So the cool thing is despite there being so much patriarchy in this time period, there's still a lot of awesome, awesome women characters. And that's what reminded me a little bit of Little Women. It felt like this was Gossip Girl meets Little Women meets like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> it's kind of a really cool combo. Let's talk about a few other things. So we talked about the Colin, Marina, and Penelope love triangle. Let's talk about Simon and Daphne. I can't hold it in any longer. So when this, this pairing first happened and they said like, oh, it's just a ruse. It's just to get, get us both something that we want. He wanted all the mamas off of his back and she wanted to be able to find the best suitor. And so they were both getting something from the equation, but it was very much level one feminine, level one masculine. Like we're gonna get what we want, even if it means that we're being deceitful or taking advantage. And then it felt like it started to develop level two relationship of level two feminine and level two masculine where they were talking a lot more about things on their promenades and when they had time together, including like those saucy details when he was teaching her basically how to self-pleasure, which I thought was hilarious and I'm not opposed to that at all. Um, just wasn't expecting it. And it felt like they were starting to develop this friendship and this sense of respect for one another until he decided to you know back out because lady danbury had told him don't string this woman along now when the prince comes in and the prince is starting to pursue her i thought that she might go with the prince i thought there might be like a fast forward decades and then she reunites with simon but that she would settle down with the prince because i mean let's be honest maybe it's just because i'm an enneagram three and enneagram threes like you know shiny things and status and being important but i was like it's a prince like what it's a prince maybe you should give him a give him a little more of a chance <laughs> but i can understand why daphne was into simon because daphne is perhaps into men who are unavailable. I don't know when her father died, but I know that her father passed. He's not in the picture. She's probably longing to feel close to healthy masculine or masculine in general. It doesn't seem like her brothers are super present. I mean, there's a few like, oh, we're one big family um, moments, but doesn't really feel like Anthony or Benedict are taking a big interest in uh, her life other than trying to control her options. So it feels like her falling in love with Simon is a big F you to her brothers and also perhaps a representation of her desire to be with an unavailable masculine and her dad is not available because he's passed. So that's just my take on it. Um, Unfortunately, I think it creates this narrative that no matter how unavailable a guy is, no matter how much crap he's going through, like if you just work hard enough as a woman, you can get him to change his mind. And I think that that is not a healthy narrative for us to absorb because it's not our responsibility to take on someone's stuff 
typically they don't just all of a sudden change their mind and say, oh, I was wrong. I do want a baby (laughs) and I do want to get married. Normally, a man needs to do some work on himself. He needs to connect with other men. Now, granted, he maybe did that with his boxing buddy and he he worked through his own struggles, but it it feels a little too fairy tale for me in that regard. However, I do want to point out the emotional leader and the erotic leader. So we were talking about that a little bit earlier because Marina led with a lot of erotic energy and with Simon and Daphne, Simon initially led with a lot of erotic energy. You know, he was the one setting the structure saying like, let's do this ruse. Here's the plan. You could tell that he was kind of into her, like eyeing her and and checking her out. And obviously he was starting to be really uh, flirtatious with her and telling her about sex and all of those taboo things. And then she was more of the emotional leader. She was like, here's what I want. Here's what my heart is longing for. I want to have children. I envision this grand life for myself. And so as they were developing into this, stage two relationship she was holding the emotional leader he was holding the erotic leader and that works really well that creates a lot of polarity so we can say erotic leader is masculine and emotional leader is feminine but it really doesn't matter the gender we don't have to assign a gender to it Uh, when when someone is embodying the emotional leader they're vulnerable about what they want about how they feel about what displeases them about what pleases them they have perhaps wonder and curiosity and asking questions. And these are all things that I think are great for creating more emotional connection in a, in a couple. And then the erotic leader is the one maybe talking about sex or having innuendo and being more direct and creating the plans and just bringing more of that agency and that penetration energy into the relationship. Now, what's interesting is that as the season progressed, they switched roles a little bit. So when Daphne wasn't getting what she wanted from Simon, when he was pulling away, she got strategic and she said, well, I can't just put all my eggs in that basket. I'm going to have a great relationship no matter what. And so I need to start opening up my options. And that's when she allowed the prince to start courting her. And she moved more into the erotic leader. There's that scene where she comes down the stairway and she like uh, has the, the fan and she drops it and the prince comes over and everyone's captivated. She's definitely bringing the erotic energy there and she's allowing herself to be seen to feel seductive, to bring her, you know, like sovereign energy into the space. And every it's, it's a pretty um, electric, uh, electric shot or scene. And then she's literally dropping the handkerchief. She's literally dropping this fan and, and just waiting. She's waiting to see if he picks it up. So sometimes as women, that's one of the hardest things to do is just wait to like drop a hint and see if he picks it up. It could be a text, it could be a phone call, it could be sending him a link or a meme. Like we're so anxious sometimes to know how the other person feels instead of just dropping the handkerchief, batting our eyes or whatever the the modern day equivalent is and then letting, letting the person pursue. Now, once she moves into that erotic leader, Simon moves into the emotional leader. So then he starts opening his heart. He comes to the party, even though he was supposed to get on a a ship that night and leave the country. He starts professing his feelings for her. Now, she's still upset. She's still angry. And so she's, you know, telling him basically to bug off and that she's going to be a princess and 
all of that. But then she goes into the garden, which we find out later was purposeful. She lured him into the garden, which leads to the kiss, which leads to um, them basically being paired together. So she's still in that erotic leader when she goes into the garden and flees. And as he chases after her, um, then they have the kiss and they have the moment where their fate is bound forever. <laughs> now, she could have still chosen differently. It's not entirely clear that Crescentia or that other woman did or didn't see them in the garden, but that's just the way that the story played out. Um, I think that Daphne could have been a little more vulnerable sooner with Simon and vice versa. They could have said, I know this is a ruse, but like, there's something going on here. They showed that in the scene where they're looking at the artwork that his mother loved and she kind of reaches for his hand and he reaches for hers, but they both seem a little too, he seems too emotionally shut down and she seems too, maybe not too, but strategic, you know, about uh, not wanting to open up and not wanting to share. So had she been more vulnerable sooner, you know, maybe that would have scared him away or maybe it would have made him thrilled and excited. Who knows? But I think they do a great job of explaining the emotional leader and the erotic leader. And then, of course, she's kind of playing this, um, the, the savior when she comes and interrupts the duel and <laughs> rides through the duel. And then they decide that they're going to stay or, you know, that they are going to get married. And then fast forward, you know, that scene where she basically decides to get impregnated. She definitely is in the erotic leader in that scene. She just climbs on top and is like, this is what's happening. So I appreciate her willingness to be in the emotional leader and the erotic leader. I think there could have been a little more emotion, but I do appreciate that she wasn't going to let anyone keep her from getting what she wanted. Um, so yeah, I love the strength of the female characters throughout the production. I think given the time period, they did a pretty good job of that. Although some of the, some of the stuff was a little unrealistic. Um, the, the soprano or the opera singer, Sienna, I was a little bit confused why she was going back to him in the boxing scene. Like she had gotten another, um, lover or boyfriend and then they ended up having sex underneath the, the boxing gym. Um, I didn't really understand like why she kind of took him back because it felt like she had already moved on and he hadn't really done anything for her other than have sex with her, <laughs> like, and, and take care of her, I guess, by paying her rent, but he wasn't emotionally available to her and making plans for her. And then at the end, he was like, oh, just come be a part of my life. And it felt really inauthentic. So I'm glad that it ended that way and not just her opening the door, wearing her tiara and saying, like, let's go right off into the sunset, because that didn't feel like it did her justice with what she wanted in her life and, and who she is. So Sienna, I thought was a great character and an example of a woman who made a decision that maybe was different than what some people might choose in that situation, but it felt aligned, it felt aligned with her. Okay. So Benedict Bridgerton is the one who went to the artist party and the sculpture and all of that. I think that's a setup for maybe some menage a trois in the second season or a, a budding romance between him and that male artist. I don't know. I'd like to see a little, you know, homosexual love affairs and, and make it a little more, um, uh, diverse in that way. It doesn't need to just be heterosexual relationships. So I think that would be great if there was more of that in the second season. Um, yeah, I think that that might be, might be where that's headed. And then Anthony, the oldest son, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So Anthony 
is kind of this rogue guy who pretends to be the head of the household, but he's really out like drinking. He's always pointing fingers at Simon, like that Simon is a rake. But I think Anthony out of all the characters made me the most pissed off. It was like, you're hurting your sister's chances. You're trying to marry her off to someone who is a total schmuck. Like I forget the guy's name who he originally like promised her hand to that Simon ended up punching in the alley, which was also a very satisfying, very satisfying scene. But he did not listen at all to his mother or his his mother's interest or to Daphne's interest. He was barely present. He was um, not honoring his lover, Sienna, like camp, like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm curious what they do with this character in the second season. He said that he's ready to date, but I wouldn't trust that guy with anything. <laughs> so we'll see if he can turn his character around. Um, yes, Benedict was starting to step into an alternative society. I thought that was really nice too. And, and I want to see more of that. I really appreciated the artistry um, and the different, uh, yeah, it was just nice to see people throughout the, the series, but especially in that subplot to push against the societal expectations of what happiness is and what um, is good societal behavior. Because Seems like they were, um, yeah, living, living their truth and living authentically. And I felt really, um, like sad when the artist was talking about how painful it is to be in a room with his lover because the artist is married, but he also is in love with another man and they have their own love affair, but in public, they can't show that. And my heart was aching. I was like, oh my God, I can't even imagine being in love with someone and not being able to even make eye contact with them. Like there's a scene where Daphne and Simon are like, I burn for you. And I'm like, wow, I can only imagine how much you would burn for someone that you're in love with that you can't even have any, any contact with. So that really um, struck me and made me feel a lot of compassion for people in the LGBTQ community. Not only now, it's still tough now, but I can't even imagine, you know, 100, 200 years ago. Joanne says, I like when Daphne talked to Simon under the rain. She really understood what was going on with him. Yes. So Daphne was able to kind of slow down and connect. And especially at the very end where she basically said, like, I understand why you are the way that you are. I understand that your dad was horrible to you and it's okay. So as she softened her heart and as she became vulnerable, and of course it was raining, which is like a sign of baptism and a sign of renewal, then he was able to, to step forward too. So at that very end episode, she moved into her emotional leader and he then kind of claimed her again and moved into his erotic leader. So if you're in like an impasse with someone, just consider like, do I need to set some healthy boundaries? Do I need to become more of the erotic leader? Do I need to have more seduction, more mystery, more clarity with my vision and make more direction for myself in my life and what I want? Or do I need to be the emotional leader? If we're at an impasse and the other person's not talking and nothing's going on and we're at a stalemate, like maybe I need to bring in my heart. Maybe I need to share how I feel and what I want and uh, offer some empathy in the situation. Um, Eloise, I'm really hoping that Eloise Bridgerton, the one who is wanting to make her way in the world, wanting to be an author, um, not wanting to step into her new role in society. I hope she can find someone just as badass as she is, someone who is an intellectual, someone who's into societal change, someone who is not confined to gender norms. Uh, I think it would be cool if she ended up being with someone who is happy to take care of, um, you know, help take care of the children or take care of 
all of the children. So we'll see if they can create some sort of character like that. But that would be really nice. And it would be nice to see her involved in politics or who, I don't know what, I can't remember the time frame if this is even close to women's suffrage, but something where she feels connected to her purpose and her voice and that she's respected in that. And I hope that her brothers and her mom will also see her in that and respect her in that. Uh, obviously, I thought the sex scenes were very hot <laughs> and very um, amazing. And I'm wondering if they're going to make it a little more um, kinky or a little more um, taboo or yeah, what direction they're going to take it in in the next season. But I think there's a lot of room. Uh, a lot of room for gender roles, for different sorts of um, homosexual encounters and relationships, for um, changing our role and our, our position in society, and then continuing to explore different erotic uh, exchanges. <laughs> if you take nothing else away, consider vulnerability, because why not? save yourself the time if someone is not interested and creating not destroying and then emotional leader and erotic leader and i talk a lot about um the masculine and the feminine or um, erotic leader emotional leader in my course queens of pleasure so if that's something you're interested in then definitely set up a call with me or someone from my team you can go to violetlang.com forward slash talk and that's where you can set up a breakthrough session and i will also be offering my sacred sexuality program sometime in march i don't know exactly when and that's a program that helps us learn more about how to become the erotic leader. We talk about sexuality as it flows through each of our seven chakras, as well as just basics about sexuality in terms of positions and interest and turn on and desire and how to communicate about our desires and, and all of that, but in a very holistic way. So if you're interested in the sacred sexuality stuff, then reach out to me. You can email info at violetlang.com. Thank you everyone for joining and watching and, um, yeah, if you want to contact me about Queens of Pleasure, go to violetlang.com forward slash talk. And if you want information about sacred sexuality, stay tuned in the Facebook group or email info at violetlang.com. And then let's all stay tuned for season two of Bridgerton. Thanks for tuning in and turning on for healthy love. Because better relationships mean more power, more creativity, and a better planet. I'm here to end the suffering of abuse and loneliness, and it starts with you please subscribe to my show and leave a review.